0: this college of veterinary medicine and biomedical sciences is a very highly ranked college uh, not only nationally but around the world and so firstly it's it's an extraordinary privilege to be asked to come back and take a leadership role
1: from the texas veterinary medical association in austin texas this is veterinary vitals a show that features open and honest conversations with veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein, Media Coordinator for TVMA. For this episode, I encourage you to sit down and relax with a cup of English tea. Our guest today grew up south of London and attended Royal Veterinary College at the University of London. Meet Dr. John August the Interim Dean of Texas A&M University College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. We wanted to get to know him a little better. He has had so many different titles to his name, professor, international speaker, researcher, dean of faculties, and associate provost, just to name a few. But the one role that serves as his foundation for all of these others is he's a veterinarian. Unlike many veterinarians I've spoken with, Becoming a veterinarian wasn't something he wanted to be since he was a child.
0: Well, I I never knew that I wanted to be a veterinarian. It took somebody who was more clever than me to tell me that. But when I was studying biology and I was about 15, I was interested in going to medical school. And my biology teacher at that time could tell that I was interested in animals, that I loved medicine. And it was he who suggested that I might want to explore me medicine instead of medicine and I wouldn't be here today if it hadn't been for my biology teacher seeing something in me that I didn't recognize.
1: Wow so does your biology teacher know the sort of impact he's had on your life? Uh,
0: I, I did but it was about 30 years too late. It was quite a while after I, um, I think after I'd had a chance to with a little bit of pride in my career I wrote back to him and told him what I was doing and um I I think that's one of the great pleasures I think of being a teacher is that you sometimes get these very delayed thank yous and I <laughs> am a very delayed thank you about 30 years after um, I finished vet school.
1: Okay. And so you're an instructor have you received any delayed thank yous that yourself?
0: I have and um I I keep the letters they are or the emails and they usually are quite late they're people who realize that perhaps that I help them develop an interest in my own area of veterinary medicine or, or that I took an interest in a student who was struggling and helped them get through it. It's very often It's a, sometimes it's the students who are struggling and you don't realize at the time that you give them some special attention and mentoring and advice. And it's not until years later they will, they're successful in their careers and they'll think, I need to write a letter and thank you for, um, for helping me through a difficult time.
1: Yeah. That's really special to get that sort of note.
0: Um, absolutely special. Those are those are the best kind of notes, especially the ones that are totally unexpected and are many years late. They they really make you feel proud of uh, yourself and and realize that you're perhaps you're doing things every day that you don't realize have impact on people.
1: Mm-hmm. So your claim to fame is you're known as an expert with uh, internal medicine for cats. Um, So tell me about this part of your career.
0: I don't know whether I'm famous for that, but I think that I have a little notoriety. Yeah. Uh, I'm coming from England. um, When I came to the States in the early 70s, uh, cats were more popular in England at that time than they were in the States. And I came over to do a postgraduate internship at Auburn University. And I quickly became known as the person who would deal with the cats. And it was by no means expertise. It was simply that I was a little more knowledgeable than everybody else. And very soon after that, cats started to become part of the family, became popular in the States. And I just was in the right place at the right time for my name, sticking with someone who um, felt comfortable around cats and and their problems and their health problems. And uh, I was, it, that provided me with opportunities over the next 30 years or so to work on books, travel the world, um, give presentations all around the world. And it was um, truly a wonderful time of my career. And if I'd graduated five years later, I would have missed that opportunity.
1: Wow. So you said you traveled all over the world. When we spoke earlier, you said one place was in Australia. Uh, Tell me about that trip.
0: That was quite recently. That was about five or six years ago. And I was spending, I had, Uh, some time away from Texas A&M University at the University of Sydney I was down there giving some workshops and presentations actually not on cats and I spent um, several months down there wonderful wonderful part of the world and some graduate students came up to me after a presentation and said "Uh, August we hear you're pretty good with cats and I said I'm reasonably confident and I said why and they said we're part of a research project and we need someone to help us bleed some animals and I said okay what and where and they said well, we're heading to the outback. And I thought, that, well, that's interesting. And then I said, uh, what are the animals? And they said, uh, Tasmanian devils. And so we trekked up to the outback. These, these were Tasmanian devils that were being bred as part of a conservation process because they're dying out in Australia. This was on the mainland of Australia in a very remote location in a multi-million-dollar facility. But we had to trap these animals, which are angry at best when they are at any time and uh, trap them and anesthetize them and get blood samples for genetic and immunologic testing. And it was just uh, in the evenings, we went out into the outback um, on Jeeps with big searchlights. And we saw animals that most Australians would never see. It was an extraordinary part of uh, my life and uh, just a wonderful experience. But I had no idea that I would be taking blood samples from Tasmanian devils at any time in my career.
1: Yeah. And you also told me that you traveled to Brazil and it sounded like you played some sort of role um, in helping to extend the lives of cats. Um, I know that's like a really big statement. <laughs> um, uh, what would you say about that?
0: Well, I, uh, I spent much more time in Argentina and Chile than okay. Brazil and, and early on, uh, quite early on in my career. I was asked to go down to Chile and Argentina, and I probably went down there between them a total of 20 times uh, to help at the universities down there as people were starting out feline medicine programs. And when I would first go down there, they would tell me, don't talk about diseases of old cats because we don't see old cats. They die when they're quite young down here. But it was really gratifying because the last time I went down there, I think it was in and. 14, perhaps, to Chile, they wanted me to give a, a presentation on older cats and, and their problems. And it reminded me that in those 15 or 20 years that I'd been going down there, that things had changed. Cats have become part of the family. Cats were growing older. They were, veterinarians were used to helping them with their problems as the cats got older. And now we were dealing with the same kind of problems down there. And I'd like to think, as we, as we saw here, and I'd like to think that I had a little role in, in sort of introducing feline medicine, especially into Argentina and Chile. Had many, many wonderful friends down there that I used to visit and spent some time in Brazil, but not nearly as much as uh, those two countries.
1: Okay. And do you have any cats at home?
0: Uh, I used to. Uh, when I worked at Virginia Tech before I came to uh, Texas A&M, um, breeders with whom we used to work through the veterinary clinic there both two breeders gave me kittens an abyssinian kitten and a persian kitten um and those lived until old age but my wife janet is allergic to cats oh once once they those kittens passed away we haven't replaced them and janet feels much better now so we don't have cats at home and um, and it used to be when i would work in the teaching hospital i would be seeing cats all day so I got my, the good fill of cats throughout the day that would help me with my, um, with my love for cats.
1: Wow. That's so interesting that your wife's allergic. It wasn't like a deal breaker, like, wait, I love cats and you're allergic. This isn't going to work.
0: <laughs> it did. She, she was very patient, but when the cats passed away and we moved into a new house, we decided that, um, we wouldn't have any more cats at that time, but, um. I've had them for many, many years, until the last 20 years or so, we've not um, had cats in my house.
1: Okay. All right. So you started off as an assistant professor of small animal internal medicine at Auburn University, right after your residency and master's. You taught at Virginia Tech, and then joined Texas A&M in 1986 as a professor and head of the department of small animal medicine and surgery so tell me did you always want to be an instructor
0: uh, no i i, I went uh, i went to auburn initially from uh, london i got matched through the matching program with auburn and and had fully intended to come back to london and go into a specialty practice after um, an internship and help take care of cats in a large practice in London. Uh, but I got hooked on uh, working with students. Um, and in fact, when I came to Auburn, most of the students were older than me. I was 23 and most of the students were 25, 26. So it was, it was strange. I stayed at Auburn for my residency, married, married my wife. So I, I've stayed in the States ever since. Um, and, um, but so, you know, working with students can be profoundly gratifying. And, and working in teaching hospitals can be profoundly gratifying. And so uh, it wasn't my original intent, but I pretty quickly became a poet.
1: So the reason that you were younger than some of the students, is that a difference in the education system in London? It is.
0: Um, so in, in Britain, in high school, for example, I had to choose when I was 15, 16, which direction I wanted to go. And I, I, I chose to do physics and chemistry and biology in preparation for vet school. And vet school, I applied first time around for vet school when I was 17, didn't get in. And second time around, I got in when I was uh, a year later. And so vet school is five years. And so I got out right around my 23rd birthday. And, and, um, and I'm not sure that that's any better than the, than the US system, but it does get you out earlier. But my education, I think, wasn't as broad as the education that you get in the pre-veterinary curriculum here and in the United States.
1: Mm, very interesting. So, and you've received several teaching awards. So not only has it been gratifying, but you've been recognized um, from Texas a and Virginia Tech, and Auburn. So what have these awards meant to you?
0: I think it's meant that People understand that I take teaching very seriously. I've always tried to take risks with teaching and teach with new methods and engage the students. And one of the things that I truly try to do is to help the students feel part of a team in the in the classroom. And so uh, I, I put I've put a lot of hard work into teaching over the years and and have gone through quite a lot of professional development to improve my teaching. And so it really is nice when you get recognized for hard work like that. It didn't come easy.
1: So it sounds like you have to be a lifelong learner to continue to be a good teacher.
0: You do, because, because our students change so much. The students in the 1970s and 80s just expected to have lectures. Nowadays, our students expect to have a very active classroom environment and just and to, to many Sense, um, expect to be entertained in a digital world. And so you have to be one ahead of the students in, in engaging them. And that, that does mean that you have to go through continuous professional development.
1: So this is not the first time that you've been interim dean at a and So you were interim associate dean for clinical and outreach programs at the college, as well as deputy dean later on. You also were interim head of the Department of Veterinary Pathobiology, and recently served as interim dean of the School of Public Health, and dean of faculties and associate provost. So let's just say you have plenty of experience and knowledge. Why do you enjoy these types of roles, especially those interim positions?
0: Well, I, I never, I never aim to be an interim. You never, you—that's never a goal to be an interim. <laughs> um, I've had three quite different positions outside of the um, um, outside of my original career track. I was very fortunate to be the university's dean of faculties, which is a, a university-wide role in, in all faculty affairs. It allowed me to travel on a number of occasions to our campus in Qatar, Galveston, our law schools. So I had to really broaden my understanding of the university. When I was winding that down, the provost asked me if I would help her by being interim dean of the School of Public Health. And that was something I never imagined that I would do. But for me, it was a professional opportunity. And I was—I felt like I was very challenged. It's not my discipline. I didn't know the people there. The provost knew that I had some appropriate administrative experience, and apparently she trusted me. And it was an intensely rewarding experience. Um, uh, with some very specific expectations from her, and I think that we met most of them. And as a result of that, when this position came open, she asked me again and said, uh, would I be interested in doing so? And I, I respect the provost greatly, and I, I said yes. Uh, and I think when you get to my stage of the career, I, I turned 70 last uh, in, in March, I don't have to worry about permanency in any of my jobs, and so to have different jobs like this has been professionally very challenging and very rewarding, and I'd like to think that I've developed enough administrative experience that I can handle a variety of of, uh, opportunities and challenges.
1: Any stories that sum up your appreciation for this work? So, you know, the role you had at the School of Public Health, uh, Dean of Faculties, anything that you really liked about those experiences? You said it was very challenging.
0: I think for both of them it provided me with opportunities to understand the scope and of expertise of our faculty beyond veterinary medicine on this campus. I had an opportunity to, to evaluate the dossiers of people who dive into blue holes in the Gulf of Mexico or engineers I had a chance to interact with former astronauts, I had a chance to go on several occasions to our wonderful campus in Qatar, uh, in Doha, Qatar. So I think, and, and I had a wonderful opportunity to understand the role of my colleagues in public health, not only here, but the, the influence they have on the border community near Mexico in Texas, and the amazing things that they're doing throughout our state. So. For me, I think the story I could tell is that uh, those experiences provided me with eye openers that I would not have had otherwise. That made me very proud to be a small part of this university.
1: So I was going to ask, why did you decide to take on this role of of interim dean at this time in your life? And you know what you were saying was at this time in your career, you're not worried too much about being in place permanently. Um, So it's nice to be able to have that flexibility and he also said that you respected the provost. Any other reasons you decided to take this role?
0: So this, this College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences is a very highly ranked college, uh, not only nationally, but around the world. And so firstly, it's, it's an extraordinary privilege to be asked to come back and take a leadership role. And it's changed enormously as well since I left. So I left in 2014 to go to campus positions, and I've been away about five years, six years, and and new buildings, new programs, new curriculum. There's a lot for me to learn, and and so it wasn't as though I was going to come back and have an easy job. And none of our jobs are easy. This one is is very fulfilling, but it, it it is almost like coming back to a new. College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. It's not coming back to the place I left. And I think that that's been very challenging for me in a positive way. And this is a very large college uh, compared to some of the other situations in which I've been involved. The School of Public Health is an amazing school, but it is quite small compared to this College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. And so it, it's, it's quite challenging administratively to deal with many important issues at the same time. And I'm, I'm still on a steep learning curve.
1: You know, you said you had some professional development, uh, being a teacher. And I know you said that at a and they often, I don't know if they ask faculty members to take basic mediation. You know, you have a certificate. I was wondering how that has helped you and your
0: roles. Well the College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences has a very strong program in in providing opportunities for its faculty and staff to go through mediation training and dealing with difficult dialogues. And I, I went through that training quite some time ago. Uh, and I've been in, I've been involved in four formal mediations at Texas AM based on based on that. Um, but actually it, it The kind of skills that you learn in listening and in respectful communication and in expectations that comes from mediation training are very useful in in our work every day. And so it's not as though it's only associated with mediation, but it's dealing with subtle conflict or significant conflict or developing consensus that happens in our work every day. And and so those kind of skills have helped me along the way in the kind of jobs that I've had, especially with dean of faculties in that office, not only had to help with faculty development, but when significant problems arise, and there are nearly 4,000 faculty on this campus and around its other campuses, um, you can imagine that there are issues. And so many issues happen behind closed doors in that office And you have to learn how to interact with people who are under stress or or who are complaining or about their work or have criticism about their work. And so those kind of mediation skills helped me deal with those kind of difficult and challenging situations.
1: All right. So tell me what your plans and goals are during your tenure as interim dean.
0: Firstly, with COVID happening at the present time, we have in a very large college, and with a college that has a large and busy teaching hospital, uh, there's a lot of uh, issues that we need to be dealing with with uh, well-being, physical well-being, emotional well-being. And I, firstly, I'm committed to doing what I can in a college that is already doing a lot along along those lines. I'm committed to bringing additional ideas as to how we can ensure that this is a supportive workplace at a time of great inconsistency and stress, because we really don't know what's going to be happening in the fall semester. We don't know what's going to be happening when 60,000 students return to town, how that's going to affect the infection rate in town, how it's going to affect the educational system, hospital function. So there's a lot of stress obviously and uncertainty and what one of my main goals is to uh, to focus on well-being we have a a small animal hospital that uh, its age does not reflect the quality of work that is going on inside we have amazing faculty clinicians amazing staff and students and yet we have a building that was first occupied in 1982 and so one of my goals is to work with the university to develop um, plans for an innovative replacement for that building, and that's that's going to be an expensive replacement. But I'm committed to working on that, and I'm hoping that that replacement will be a facility that where it brings a variety of scientists together to promote animal health, in addition to being one the, the finest small animal hospital in the world. That's a multi-year project. Um, I'm committed also to bringing some of the many experiences that I've had elsewhere on campus to integrate them into our culture at the College of Veterinary Medicine and having had experiences um, elsewhere in the Dean of Faculty's Office and the School of Public Health. uh, I want to be able to influence the kind of processes that we have for promotion and tenure and hiring of faculty and ensure that we're doing many of those kind of things in an exemplary way. So there, there are many, uh, many things like that that I that I've got on my um, on my plate. And um, uh, but most importantly, we the missions of um, education across our graduate, undergraduate, and professional education, our research mission, and our service to every citizen of the state. I want to make sure that they are all exemplary. Um, In 10 days or so, I'm going to be heading up to our our beautiful new building that is almost ready to be occupied on the campus of West Texas A&M University where we have research and educational facilities and where we hope to be starting a two plus two program with our DVM program. And so we have this beautiful new facility that should be open in in September. And one of my goals as well is to to make sure that that gets off to a strong start program is called Vero Veterinary Education Research and Outreach uh, Program, and it's the the new building is on the West Texas A&M University campus in Canyon, Texas, and is a collaboration between our two programs, and the the 2 plus 2 program is designed to attract students from that region, the panhandle of Texas, who are interested in in the agricultural aspects of uh, Texas, especially the, the beef industry, and attract them into our DVM curriculum, providing them with opportunities to start their first two years uh, in our facility up there and then move to College Station for the third year and perhaps back up there for their clinical year in the fourth year. So we're, we are um, very excited about that facility happening in that partnership.
1: So you talked about several of your goals. Um, you know I know diversity is a hot topic right now. Can you tell me about anything the college is doing to address that?
0: Well, I'm very proud to say that our college has, a, has had and continues to have one of the strongest records on campus here at Texas A&;M and through peer institutions for the promotion of diversity and inclusion and respect among the college community as a whole. Um, Veterinary medicine is one of the least diverse professions, and our college has worked very diligently to make sure that the application process for coming into veterinary medicine is as provides opportunities for people from all backgrounds. And and we hold uh, diversity and and a diverse population and and an inclusive environment here as a very, very high priority. And it is integrated into everything we do um, as it comes to looking for students and faculty who represent the state of Texas and the diversity of the state of Texas. Uh, Certainly veterinary medicine has some challenges, I think, because many families from from African-American or Hispanic backgrounds, when they think about their Children going into the health sciences, they think much more about medicine than they would do, or dentistry than they would do veterinary medicine. But we also have very strong uh, recruiting uh, programs going on in parts of the state where uh, there are Hispanic populations or African-American populations and where young people may be interested in veterinary medicine. And we have some strong programs in the K through 12 uh, ages trying to get kids interested in biology and veterinary medicine at an early age so that we can get them hooked. So, yes, our college has a very, very strong track record, uh, and we're very proud of it, of of working to create a diverse and inclusive environment here.
1: Wonderful. Okay, so these are all your goals. Now I'm curious, what's a day in the life for you?
0: Well, I start early. Um, I get up at 4.30, and I'm usually in here about 6.15 to Um, to get organized for the day. Uh, I spend quite a lot of my time now with Zoom meetings. I don't get to travel as much as I would like to do. And and, um, so um, much of my day is spent with different groups of people with Zoom meetings, moving our programs forward, addressing the issues that come up, identifying opportunities, looking at complex issues and, and moving our basic educational and research and service and patient care um, missions forward. And I have to sort of take a big, wear a big hat when I do that. I, you know, when I think about the fact that I'm a cat doctor, I can not like I'm a cat doctor in those meetings. I have to think about every aspect of our programs from our equine programs to our wildlife programs and make sure that all of them are getting the appropriate attention with regard to that. So I see myself somewhat as a, a conductor of the orchestra.
1: Okay. And then you work until what time?
0: Well, I, I will usually by 5.30 here, my brain is starting to get tired.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I'll work on some, uh, some emails after dinner at home and catch those up. But my my best time for working is first thing in the morning. I'm here early and I'll take a couple of hours before the office really gets going to um, get caught up for things for the day. Um, I always think about Saturdays as being my goof off day. Things I'm very happy to work in my office at home, but Saturdays is uh, a time when I, I need to refresh my brain.
1: So what do you do on Saturdays?
0: So I typically get up early on Saturdays as well, and I head into the radio station. And I get to the radio station somewhere between seven and seven thirty, and I record a music program every week that is called Global Rhythms. It, it airs both on FM and online uh, after at two o six on Thursdays, and it. The music that I play is contemporary, modern, international music and it reminds me of my travels from around the world. Much of the music comes from places that I had a chance to visit professionally. When I was in Sydney, um, back in 2014, I got an email and they asked me if I would like to do the Thursday afternoon program. And I said, I can't do it live. I have to pre-record it. And I thought for a while, did I have the time? And I said, yes, I can't miss doing this. I had done a similar program on Tuesday afternoons with contemporary jazz back in the 1990s. And had had to give that up because of commitments. But it's something I do every week. I hate getting up early on Saturday mornings, but the being behind the microphone for two hours playing music provides me also with a wonderful public speaking exercise every week. I try very hard where, whenever I'm speaking to choose my words carefully. And so being behind the microphone and trying to sound as though I'm live is not only do that, but I have wonderful music going in the headphones. And I've got a collection of maybe 2000 tracks on my iPad. So I play a fresh mix every week. We have a very international community locally here. So I think because quite a lot of my colleagues like to hear music from their home countries, from India to Argentina to Japan and elsewhere. So it's it's one of the things I thoroughly enjoy doing.
1: So you've been preparing for this podcast for a very long time with your public speaking.
0: <laughs> uh, I, yes, public speaking used to scare me terribly. And now I really don't mind it. I'm. I quite enjoy public speaking as long as I have a little, um, notice. And so, but going into the studio every week behind a microphone provides me with one more exercise in choosing my words very carefully when I, when I'm talking to a very diverse audience and especially when I'm talking about international, um, music and international issues, I have to be very careful about making sure that I'm respectful for for every culture that, who might be listening. And I have colleagues in Chile and Serbia who listen every week while they are working or, or getting their lectures ready for the next day. So I, I know people around the world uh, tune in when they know that I've, I'm on the program.
1: Yeah. And so do you play any of the music? Like, do you play instruments?
0: No, I'd be terrible at what I'd hate <laughs> to the audience if I did that. Uh, I would love to, if I could ever find time to retire. I would love to play the, the piano really well. okay. But I just haven't, I, I've been miserably, I've been a miserable failure at trying to retire. Every time I try to, uh, my boss comes along and has another job for me.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, but I, maybe you'll know the time when, when it comes.
0: Yeah, I think I will, yeah.
1: So tell me about the college's working relationship with TVMA, why do you think that this partnership is important to the vet school and our association?
0: We benefit each other in so many different ways. It's, it's a mutually beneficial partnership. Um, we, we as the College of Veterinary Medicine uh, provide the vast majority of veterinarians in the state of Texas, and the TVMA expects us to prepare them very well, firstly. PVMA is, is our advocate as we have a, need a partner in order to seek the resources from the state that we need. And so we need to be thinking along the same lines. We need to be have a close and trusting partnership because we both have the same goal in, in, in exemplary veterinary medicine in the state of Texas. And without having that partnership of advocacy and of, um, of us through our outstanding educational program and supporting the research that is necessary in the state to, for animal health, um, neither of us would be successful. So a very healthy partnership is, uh, and that's something that I'm I'm looking forward to to working with. But before I left and headed over to campus, I, I certainly enjoyed a healthy relationship with TVMA. Thoroughly enjoyed the partnership, and I'm delighted to be back and and looking forward to working closely with the leadership team of your association.
1: Yes. Anything else you would like to share with listeners about the college, um, your background? Well, actually, I, <laughs> I have a question. Did you experience any sort of culture shock when you moved from London to the States?
0: Oh, so that's a, that really is a no-brainer. Yeah. I, came from, I came from London and I came to rural Alabama at Auburn which was quite a small school straight from London. So yes it was a, a culture shock um, and but I'm, I'm somebody who loves traveling and I love cultures and, and so I've always, um, I've, that's never worried me. I met my wife at Auburn, she was a student at Auburn when I came over as an intern so i got Auburn to certainly thank for that as well, um, I remember sitting outside with my pager um, at Christmas by the pool in my apartments um, I was on call I got because I was from England i I got every call at Thanksgiving and Christmas because everybody else wanted to go home and they knew i couldn 't go home but I remember thinking I would never be able to sit outside by the pool in London in December. The weather would have been terrible, and so there was some there was a many good things, and, and Auburn was very good to me, provided me with opportunities, and, uh, but it was a culture shock, very different from urban London to rural Alabama was, um, and in the 70s when um, when things were, um, when the the sort of interaction between communities and the African American and white communities were, were not very good at that time, and. And I'm glad to see that they've got better, they can continue to improve. But for me, it was a learning experience and part of me better understanding the world.
1: So now I will ask that question again, anything else you would like to share with listeners about the college and and your background?
0: So with regard to the college first, our college I believe is ranked out of 32, ranked fourth equal this year, which is an extraordinary feat. Uh, we our goal is to climb up further, um, and that's. But it reminds me that I have uh, a job in a very nationally recognised college of veterinary medicine and biomedical sciences, and I always that is the title of our college: College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. And that, and we have a very strong undergraduate and graduate program in biomedical sciences, and we're very proud compared to many other colleges of veterinary medicine that were able to use that full title to show the scope of what we do here. So I think um, we have extraordinary facilities. I mentioned that our small animal clinic needs to be replaced um, in in the not too distant future, but otherwise we have remarkable facilities, remarkable people here. And I, I just feel very proud that I was tapped to steer the ship for a while, and it's uh, enormously uh, professionally satisfying to to know at least that the provost had trust in me to come back to the College of Veterinary Medicine, a different place than I left six years ago, and and steer the ship for a while. So I I feel very gratified that she has that trust in me, and I I fully intend to make sure that that trust is uh, well-deserved.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure getting to know you more and you're going to do an outstanding job just from speaking with you, I can tell.
0: <laughs> thank you. It's, uh, it was fun being part of this podcast. I look forward to a strong relationship and partnership with the TVMA.
1: That was Interim Dean August, discussing the invaluable partnership between the college and TVMA and his goals for the college during his tenure. He's a world traveler, a feline expert, and the host of a radio show called Global Rhythms. The link to his show is in our show notes. We hope by now you're better acquainted with Dr. John August. On the next episode of Veterinary Vitals, you'll learn about how one hospital is revolutionizing ER veterinary medicine. I could see that this was going to be something that veterinary medicine takes on. And I wanted to be a part of that journey to bring it to other people and to make veterinary medicine more about our patients. That was Dr. Bethany Weinheimer. She graduated from veterinary school just two years ago and recently joined Veterinary Emergency Group at its first Texas location in Fort Worth. She loves its innovative model and patient first approach tune in to meet Dr. David Bessler as well. He's the founder behind this progressive hospital and learn what makes these clinics so unique. For now, please rate the show and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to Veterinary Vitals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein from TBMA.